we got briefed. <laughs> I remember my first briefing on the animals in the area that we had to be wary of. So not species of animals, specific dudes. The hippo. <laughs> like individual animals that like had the like a hippo taste for you. Like they have names. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Like the, the man-eating crocodile down at such and <laughs> oh, such God. a dam. So we have Pierce here. Your Instagram handle is the Irish Anti Poacher, and uh, that interested me because I think you reached out to us to start a conversation about something, and then I looked at your profile. Tell me, oh, because of the lockpick uh, set yeah. um, that we were talking about, and I looked at your profile, and it looks like you do some really cool stuff. Um, if you could elaborate a little bit as much as you want on what exactly that is, because um, I'm super interested in it. And I know yeah. Like what's the scope of the uh, anti poaching work you do? Yeah. Um, so I, I'm the Irish anti poacher, so I'm Irish. Uh, at the moment I've been living in Ireland um, I'm from Ireland, but I've lived in a good few places, but back in Ireland, I started to get interested in rescuing wildlife, uh, native wildlife in Ireland. And through that, I kind of discovered a few different things and different avenues for direct action to protect animals. And like probably everybody, you know, over the years, I'd heard about anti-poaching and I'd seen particularly American vets going to the, uh, to South Africa and Namibia, places like that, to use their skills to protect wildlife. And I was fascinated by that, but never really saw an avenue to do it um, and was kind of pursuing other things anyway. And then a few years ago, I decided, you know, I think I probably have a background that is, is useful and, and uh, skills and interests that are useful. Uh, so I decided to head down, head down to South Africa and get trained up and start basically trying to help in the anti-poaching thing. I've always been interested in traveling and having kind of authentic experiences in those places. So rather than just going and having the tourist thing, going and trying to maybe work in an area or uh, take part in sports in an area or whatever it was. And this time I went to do anti-poaching. And it's really complicated and problematic. And I knew that before I went because you know, I did enough research to kind of get to grips with it, but I knew I needed to get my own boots on the ground to start figuring out what is really going on here. And <laughs> Africa is a mental, a mad place. And every single thing that I thought I knew was right some of the time and dead wrong other parts of the time. It couldn't be consistently really? wrong because that'd be too straightforward. So it's got to be just chaos from start to finish basically um and it's a difficult thing to get involved in and it's a difficult and frustrating thing to see and yeah it's just, it's a huge topic so where do you want to go <laughs> so when when you say like anti-poaching um mm. you know this is uh i i would assume that that you're working for the like a government like in 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 Africa. You, you say you're in South Africa, right? 
So is this yeah. like a like a municipal thing or like a like a like a federal thing? Yeah. Um, so who, no, who's, no who's straight answers with? when it comes to this. Um, it's it's a combination of these things. So there are national parks, and they employ anti-poachers, and then there are private game reserves, and they employ anti-poachers, and then there's even rhino farms, and they employ anti-poachers. Wow. It's also called um, poaching prevention. So the, the, the gold standard, of course, is not that you're uh, arresting poachers and finding snares. The gold standard is that you're just preventing any of that from taking place in the first place. Uh, so I think that's a, a kind of an important distinction and, and move within, within the sector. Uh, it's regulated in South Africa by um, an organization called PASIRA, which uh, give you, basically, you do grades from E all the way through to A, where A is your armed response uh, for like banks. Uh, they have a lot of things called farm murders, where people might be getting murdered and they have a response unit that would go out there. Um, whereas E might be, you know, a night watchman who carries a torch and they, can, they, they grade all of the security responses from E all the way up. And to be an anti-poacher, you need to do your Pacera grades E, D and C, which sounds mad because it's the, one of the most dangerous jobs in the world. And the idea that it would be like a C level um, security job versus an A level security job is kind of mental. It's you're you're arguably at the most vulnerable and disadvantaged when you're in the bush taking on poachers, rather than in an urban setting with backup, with hospital care nearby, right, right. with all these things. So it's sort of wildly dangerous. But the the grades are at sea. And what I discovered was, you know, ultimately they need to be incredibly well trained. And, and brave and disciplined and all those things anti-poachers do but it's kind of, it, it, like no westerner or no vet like the reason you don't see American uh, vets going out there and spending extended time there is is one because it's hard to get licensed for firearms and things like that fair enough but second of all there's just no pay and so you got this really really dangerous job and the people who take on the job are really just kind of security guards that rather than guarding a vault are guarding animals some of them have you know real passion for wildlife but lots of them are just making ends meet and that's why from my oh. point of view when i go there to work I, it's purely voluntary i would never take a job from from a native african person um in order to do the job of anti-poaching if there's somebody there right, to do right. it i'm not going to take their job um and the the qualifications that i, I kind of bring to the table you know, there, there's guys there who have herded animals from the age of four years of age in the bush. And while we're in a training environment, they're, I make mincemeat of them. They're, they're, they're no good at anything. They can't shoot straight. They can't uh, use radios properly. They can't, some of them can't drive. They can, there's all these things. And then you set foot into the bush and you're like, oh, wow, I'm the infant now. I don't know what this <laughs> right, plant right. is. It's what a whole different world. Is entirely different and that was my kind of i was like okay i'm gonna go down there and i think i'm pretty competent in most of the kind of you know the big news things that people think are kind of glamorous and cool but i was like i honestly don't know what will kill me and what won't kill me in the bush i mean we all know you right. know lions are going to kill you but now 
when I went down to train there, I kind of thought, I'll, I'll figure out what's dangerous and what isn't. And I could have saved myself the bother because it just turns out that literally every single thing in the bush is trying to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, the, 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 the water's poisonous. The sunlight, I mean, if you've got my complexion, I'm Irish, the sunlight will fucking kill you in a day. Um, you, so you're going to get dehydrated. You're going to get sunburned. You're going to get heat stroke. We, the, the, I arrived on a Thursday and on Monday of my first day there, uh, of my first week there, I was treating a guy, I was treating him as though I suspected cardiac arrest, but he had a heat shock induced panic attack. And we're way up in the mountains and he's collapsed and nobody knew what to do again because the training isn't there. My training luckily was there and we got him down to safety, but you're like throwing him basically into the back of a pickup truck and then driving how, you know, who knows how far. Um, we got briefed. I remember my first briefing on the animals in the area that we had to be wary of. So not species of animals, specific dudes. The hippo. <laughs> like individual animals that like had the like a hippo taste for you. That, like they have names. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Like the, the man-eating crocodile down at such and <laughs> oh, such God. a dam. Um, and they had, uh, th- this is one thing <laughs> that like I, again, on I, I, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I know about animals. I'm pr- pretty, I, I, I got into wildlife rescue before I knew a thing about animals. But over the years, I've kind of learned about them and, and my interest has kind of increased. But in the first briefing on bush first aid, which is kind of, again, you can save yourself a lot of time if you get injured in the bush. Well, you know, they joke, you know, find a tree to sit under till you die. But uh <laughs> The, they were telling us about snakes. There was there was the black mamba that was in the valley, and I know, I always think about snakes like from movies. You know, like you see Indiana Jones dealing with the killer snake, and and the snakes are kind of waist height. These snakes are so big that when they rear up one third of their height, they could be two meters tall. So so six foot what four. The- Fuck. Yeah. So you're, you know, you potentially are looking up at a snake when it's gonna have a go at you. Um, which again, like, you're just kind of like, this is fucking, sorry, can I swear on this podcast? Oh yeah, you can swear. I've listened to some, but Americans don't swear like Irish people. So, um, I think (laughs) I just want to check in. Oh no, we, yeah, we, we don't, uh. Yeah, it's good. We just, like the last episode, we, we had an entire discussion about the C word and, it uh-huh. was just it, okay. it was it was grating. I, I I listen to it now. I'm like, oh god, why did I have to take it <laughs> Jordan, so far? Jordan it was, loves it. And <laughs> I'm not I super. Just, fond I of just it. think it doesn't. You know, it, well, whatever. That's it's all right. It's it's okay. good to use in appropriate circumstances, and it's very it's very it's like a Swiss Army knife of of insults. So yeah, that's yeah, but, what you're, language but you're allowed to be, say whatever you want here. Cool. Yeah. Cool. But yeah. Um. So yeah. So you're dealing with with wildlife that is potentially just bananas. Obviously, that's why you're there too. Um, and then you're dealing with an environment whereby you, just across the border, so where, where I've been was in the, the northeast, which is going to be bordering on Mozambique to some extent and Zimbabwe. Uh, in Mozambique, you can buy uh, an AK-47 or equivalent. They're all called AK-47s. Um, for 80, 80 euros, which nowadays is about $80. So obviously that's not legal. Um, but it means that a lot of people can be, you, you know, every poacher potentially is armed. Um, they're armed with rifles to kill rhinos usually. So they're not, 
if you get shot by one of these guns, you're just dead. Uh, even if you were to get shot by something very low caliber, you'd probably be dead anyway because you're way up in, in the hills and help is too far away and all the rest of it. Yeah. So the guys who are doing this job are really in danger kind of all the time. They're also walking potentially 50 kilometers, uh, let's say 30 miles a night um, as they walk a patrol. Uh, and that's one of the things that I really... At, at night? At night, yeah. Like, most, of, most of the work is done that's at That's crazy. Night, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, and like there's one dude that I'm thinking of, Sean, if you're listening, he was, he's, he was 17 and he was training with us. And the boots that they were issued are so totally shitty that he ended up just walking his patrols barefoot. Oh, I think you posted about this. Wow. It's I saw this. just wild. Um, and, and yeah, so what I really like about anti-poaching is you get this sort of real pragmatism. Uh, because obviously, like, you know, if you're from the United States or from Europe, you know, part of being interested in things like this is cool equipment and bring in your fucking night vision or whatever it is. But just forget about it in, in Africa. People can't afford this. They can't afford ammunition. You hear about stories about anti-poaching units being sent out where they have three magazines and in each of the three magazines, they have three rounds so nine rounds in total Jeez. spread across three things and they're expected to go out and, and protect very expensive assets. Assets is their words. It would, wouldn't be how I'd describe animals, but that's what they are. And yeah, like, like, they're put, like you hear about them going out with pistols. Um, it's, so the, what I like hearing is, you know, when you go onto YouTube or you listen to the podcast from coming out of Europe or the United States and everybody's a fucking badass and everybody's got the latest piece of equipment and you have to have it too. And why the fuck don't you have red dots and all this kind of stuff? And it's like, well, when you get into Africa, you know, you will see guys who literally are using airsoft equipment with, with lot, you know, with, with real guns because they're in an environment where they just have to buy whatever stuff that they can. What, and like, I've had this argument about tourniquets. Um, and you should always use really good tourniquets. Obviously you should. If you can't afford a tourniquet, a fucking cheap shit one from wish.com is better. If you train on it, it's better than none. If you train on it, it doesn't break and all the rest of it, fine. If you don't train on it, it doesn't matter if you get the expensive one. It's still not going to work because you're not going to be able to use it properly. Yeah. So just to inject some of this kind of practicality to it, guys who have the best boots in the world. And there were some guys who I would train with who, you know, came from better backgrounds. They'd be like, we need better boots. They'd get those better boots. And then they wouldn't be able to walk in them for three weeks. And then they'd bust their ass too hard in them and cut their feet to bits. And your feet get infected. It's not like where you get like, oh, I wore my foot training one day. Now I'll head back home and be fine again. It's like all of the training that you've had is kind of pressure tested back on you where you don't necessarily have a unit that you can depend on who are trained. You don't have like a HQ maybe that are trained. Uh, you've got all, you know, you, you just, every advantage is taken away from you in some sense and you're kind of clawing those advantages back. And I love how sharp that makes me feel. Now I do get to just fly home, you know, ultimately, but after an extended period of time there but when you're actually doing what you're doing there you really are sharpened and i love that you it, it, you it's like you know you live like a monk 
like, like when I'm here in Ireland, I'm refining my sleep system for when I go camping in the winter. And it's like, oh, maybe this piece of equipment, maybe that. When I'm there, I'm just thinking, learn to fucking sleep wherever you are. <laughs> Yeah. If you're yeah, really. bouncing around the back of a truck, learn to sleep there. Uh, learn to grab 20 minutes when someone else is doing whatever. Learn to sleep yeah. until somebody wakes you up and hands you your food. Eat it, go. Um, and I'm constantly impressed by the guys who were there who were able to do this for, you know, months at a time and then break and then back again and do it for years. Uh, it's humbling to, to see these guys doing that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, I've rambled on. Did I answer no, you? No, that's that's all <laughs> yeah. good, man. You, you know, answered that, like that actually, three of our questions. <laughs> yeah, it touches on a few different <laughs> questions. That was awesome. I do want to ask about equipment a little more. Um, yeah. You know, so you noticed that you, you mentioned that equipment's hard to get. I, I had kind of guessed that that was the case. Um, mm. Is it difficult to import equipment, even like non-firearms equipment, um, for use in this environment? Um, um, you know, so like if you have a benefactor, would it still be hard to get that kind of stuff to your guys? Well. Well, yeah, that's one of the things like I keep saying about American vets going over. And one of the so first of all, American vets offer incredible training, incredible first aid training. Like obviously, over the last twenty years, the United States Army has transformed, you know, trauma care. So there's phenomenal training that's being brought to to Africa in that capacity, um, and oftentimes they'll come with first aid equipment. And hopefully that first aid equipment stays with ranger with with anti-poaching rangers. Maybe it does. I think a lot of times it does. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, but yeah, bringing you can't bring armor into the country. You can't bring firearms into the country unless you've got like permits, obviously. However, nobody wears armor when they're doing anti-poaching, and um, there's firearms. South Africa is filled with firearms. Um, like it's it's subject to the same problems with ammunition that everywhere else is, but it has in terms of actual firearms, it has as many as you could you could ever need. Um, that's if just you could just find the money. Opinion. Yeah, if you could find the money. Yeah, I mean everything's reasonably affordable. From well, coming from my point of view, but I can tell you, like the guys that are doing the job, the 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 bulk of the guys doing the anti poaching, they do not have uh, much money at all. Um, if they're lucky, they might have um, a situation where an if they're working in a private reserve, the employer might take very good care of them and their family. They might be able to live there, whatever. But that's kind of even a difficult situation because it's like those company towns that you would have had in the United States 100 years sure, ago. Sure, sure. Where, yeah. you know, as it's long like as you're there, your paycheck. yeah, you're kind of spinning your wheels. So you don't ever get to take that break and, and, and move your your station up a little bit so so you get these guys right. doing that um but you, yeah i mean it's a wild place like you see guy like it felt like there's there's i remember being at um uh what you guys would call a mall and like it was like being in austin there's guys driving you know tricked out huge land cruisers and there's all this and there's like loads of wealth obviously and then you just go down the street and there's guys who have no money and are doing a hard job in anti-poaching or whatever other jobs they might be doing but it's just it's um you know I've, i'm reasonably well traveled it, it's strange to see the the such a middle class 
and then such poverty. Usually when you got these big middle classes, you don't have that kind of poverty level. Yeah, the, like the if you go to India, you've got the super wealthy and the yeah. super poor. But weird to be like, hey, these are American middle class people. Oh, and also the super poor. That That's not so yeah. common. So that's kind of wild. And then obviously that affects the anti-poaching job. Um, and I think... Like some people have really cracked how to do anti-poaching, and they've got they've gotten successful at it. Some of them, but obviously, but but overall, the numbers of animals is dropping down. So just to give you guys a bit of an idea, they generally talk about. I keep saying they. I mean me, obviously, but I'm I'm kind of speaking from a bigger pool of information than just my own experience. So in anti-poaching we talk about there being three levels there's typically this kind of local subsistence poaching where a guy you know breaks into a macadamia farm and he's taking plants or whatever or he's putting a snare down he's taking a couple of you know largely inexpensive assets then you move up to kind of a middle tier kind of organized crime thing where you might have like guys stealing um you know some sort of some sort of seafood to uh, swap for drugs and then they so you've got this swapping thing and it's going into crime and then you have what they call syndicate level which would be more like something like cartel level and and wildlife crime is the third biggest wildlife crime the third biggest crime in the world so you've got you what human trafficking and human exploitation drugs and then you've got wildlife crime and you do have a situation where you might have some poor uh, essentially peasant going into a rhino farm locating a rhino and then calling for a helicopter and a, and a syndicate will come in with a high-powered rifle better trained better equipped than any of the anti-poachers kill that wow. rhino chainsaw off the front of its face and helicopter out of there um so i would obviously have massive reserves about going to africa to stop some poor guy breaking into the next door field to try and feed his family. I, uh, and, and one guy owns that field purely based on a historical quirk. So I wouldn't, yeah. I'd have no interest in stopping those guys. I mean, you know what I mean, that's, that's, it's bad. I don't want them killing animals and all the rest of it, but I also don't want to be going down there and, and, and manhandling them and arresting them and shooting at them right. and that kind of stuff. <clears throat> and there's been some but the guys with the helicopters. Over... Sorry, go on. Oh, I was just saying there's been some debate over whether or not, you know, the, 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 like the sort of, um, the situation that we're in now where the animals are so endangered, uh, might have been because of like sort of colonial over hunting and yeah. now these people that might were once have. subsistence hunters. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and now these people that were once subsistence hunters, uh, are still doing mm -hmm. what they do to make a living, but now it's harder because there's like laws that, you know, the people that over hunted now put these laws in that, you know, make yeah. what they do illegal. So it's just a frustrating situation for them. Yeah. I mean, one of the names for Ireland used to be Wolf Island and the oh, British this. empire hunted our wolves to extinction. So yeah, I fully get the the stance of 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 well i mean it happened everywhere but you know over over hunting and the question that now is you know the the argument you're going to hear from rich white south africans is that yes that's all true fine but the only solution now is for us on private game reserves to 
protect right. the animals that we have. And I think there is maybe a lot of truth to that. But then you've got another side of things where people will say, legalize the sale of rhino horn. If you legalize the sale of rhino horn today, no more than legalizing drugs, take it out of the hands of criminals, regulate it. Right. Yeah. And, and also, you know, the argument people always say is, you know, cows aren't going extinct anytime soon. Right, so right. So why not if have rhino farms, breed them? And, you know, I was on a rhino farm that had 600 rhinos and every two years they saw off the horn and they store that horn. Each of those horns is probably worth between fifty to a hundred thousand dollars. Wow! Of course, that guy wants the legalization of that because right. he's sitting on a gold mine. Now, at the same time, you know any other person doing good business like that, you'd congratulate them. So it feels to us, I think, that it's a bit like no, any protecting of wildlife should be just this noble endeavor, and certainly I agree that it should be that but they're saying hey it's also and has to be if it's going to be successful it has to be a business endeavor and that do probably makes a lot of sense the, yeah sorry to interrupt you and no. uh do they saw off the horns to discourage so people don't hunt the rhino yeah or the horns yeah they do exactly. it like proactively they do it proactively and they saw them off so they don't hunt the rhino but that's not how it works what happens is Poacher goes in, finds a rhino that has no horn, they kill it because they don't want to be tracking rhinos that don't have horns. They don't think, oh, I'll come back in two years' time and it'll have grown. They walk in, they track that, and uh, tracking in Africa, obviously, I mean, tracking anywhere in the world is difficult, but, you know, there's a lot of animals there. You need to know the land very well. It's super risky and dangerous. One of the strangest things I found is just how quiet the biggest animals are like you can you can be you can be 10 feet from an elephant and not really know and hear a rustle in the bushes and then just be like jesus christ there's an how could i not have seen this thing um same thing with hippos and rhinos you're just like yeah it they're huge terrifying um and 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 just silent it's it's wild. So, so if you're going to go into that environment and try and hunt, and I mean, they're just too, you know, some of the animals out here, um, they, they basically will kill these animals to, to kill the rhinos so that they're not wasting their time tracking the wrong right. ones, if you like. Um, so, yeah, it's such a tricky topic and, and there's no like straight answers to it because certainly in the immediate term, you do need all of those um, private game reserves protecting the, the the big game you definitely do need that um it's problematic that these game reserves kind of exist they're kind of a post-colonial kind of hangover right. or something like that so that's problematic um but 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 you probably need them to do a good job for another few years before you can take the chance of saying, okay, now let's just turn this over into the public hands or let's, you know, and some of the best reserves, I suppose, are still in private hands. So like Kruger is, you know, the jewel in the crown of the national, nationally owned parks, but it borders both Mozambique and Zimbabwe. And therefore, it has this super difficult challenge from the poaching point of view, where people can just come across, poach, go back across the border, and rangers can't follow them or track them across the border or anything like that. Now, 
there's really good work being done in both of those places right on the border. So there's really good anti-poaching units over there. But again, it's just this, have have you committed a crime that you can arrest? Well, I did over there, but it's not your responsibility now. So um, there's so many things in Africa. And like even the guys from Africa with a, that I'd be worried with, they'd say they kept saying TIA this is Africa. Like they even saw how bananas the situation was. And when I'd be chatting to them and they'd be thinking like, dude, like where you come from, things make sense. Stuff doesn't make sense down here. Um, and, and it doesn't. And again, like operationally, that's a fascinating environment to, to try and do anything in. Um, like, one of the things like they like are, when you're tracking poetry is one of the things is you're you're looking for converse shoes this is one, like one of the most absurd things but you're out like looking about poaching and you look for like cons like con- converse like chuck taylor that kind of x pattern that that's what poachers will be wearing they'll just be rocking through the bush why is crest. that that's normally wild. fuck i don't know they just this is what they wear, and you you will arrest a guy. And he looks like he's on his way, and sometimes we'll say he's on his way home from being in a shibi and or you know having a drink somewhere. Um, mm, yeah, so it's like they don't want to dress like uh, like they're hunting, you know. Yeah, I mean they also don't have any clothing to hunt, you know, and like the type of hunting that you're doing and the type of animals that they're hunting, it isn't like let's say in the United States where you know guys will have this season's foliage style, you know, real mossy oak because he's hunting this time of year and whatever, like where they are, the, the, the animals are kept in smaller reserves than you had, than, you know, you would have probably in the United States and, uh, not, not even reserves. You've got parks, huge parks to hunt in. And, and they are all the ones that they're protecting for the most part in Africa are smaller than that. So they've got like a smaller environment to look for these animals. They'll know where the animals are. They'll know where water holes are at particular times. So they'll, you know, be able to track these animals really easily. They don't need you. You're never going to be camouflaged from them because these animals typically don't rely on sight. Like rhinos can't see you anyway. You don't need to be camouflaged. Um, and th- so the guys just rock in in their regular clothes if they do. And a big portion of anti-poaching they- therefore has to be intelligence gathering. That's on the one hand where you're trying to find out who in the community might be committing crimes and, and committing poaching acts. But then the biggest part is to do community outreach. So on the one hand, you're trying to get some intelligence from the community. But the best thing you can do, obviously, is provide way better jobs f- and way better alternatives to poaching. And that yeah, is a big, sure. big thing that's happening. And a lot of anti-poaching units do that and take it on. A lot of game reserves do it. Um, they have to be very careful about who they take on. Um, it, like even like if when I'm like, hey, I want to go down and, and do some anti it's kind of like, well, who's this dude? Um, but, but like they don't think Irish people are going to be bought off to go down and, and can collaborate yeah. with syndicates. Right. <laughs> But but they are still very worried about anybody who's going to go there. You know, you have to trust your team. Um, we, there's some precedent yeah. for this. Um, you know, in the in the days of the American frontier, um, the uh, new newly formed um, like law enforcement jurisdictions uh, would hire former criminals. They'd be mm-hmm. like, "I will pay you more than you are making as a criminal if you go after your criminal friends for me and bring them mm-hmm. to court." 
you know, and really? that was a that was a big part of frontier law enforcement was basically incentivizing criminals to to go to the other side because you know I mean as you know cops and criminals often aren't that different mentally it's just a matter of incentives, mm-hmm. um, you know, and so it makes sense then you know in in an anti poaching environment that you know you, you got people that are just trying to like survive so if you say yeah. you know you might survive a little bit better if you come and help me you know yeah yeah. And and I suppose that's the thing. The you've got to like it comes back to the to the same ultimate problem, whereby there's a guy in China or Vietnam, and by some quirk of global economics, his monopoly books are worth more than the equally hardworking, equally talented, intelligent African dude. And just by that quirk of global economics, this guy in China or Vietnam is able to put demand that this poor guy has to go into the bush, risk life and limb, risk, you know, dying so that no one can feed his kids to kill a rhino, to grind up the fucking horn and ship it across the world so some guy can fucking, really, I think, just show off that he has it more than anything. Because I don't think anybody believes in the efficacy of rhino horn. Um, as a medicinal treatment for anything. So, yeah, it's just this weird quirk of global economics, of, of inequality in wealth, that you can have a demand on one side of the world for something that forces some poor guy over here to, to do a job that he probably shouldn't be doing. And the best solution to that is give him better alternatives to that job. And they that's happening. And as South Africa improves economically, and there's, you know, big arguments about whether or not that's happening at all, um, we, you can move, and, and that was one of the big problems like with COVID, where you had, or coronavirus, I don't know what way you guys describe it. Um, but anyway, whatever, that virus. Ways. Um, yeah, the that coof. virus, um, that uh, caused, you know, a total shutdown of global tourism for the most part. And that meant that all of these private reserves that normally had people coming for safaris and all those jobs, they suddenly dropped off the map. And if you're being told, hey, uh, we have a lockdown here in South Africa, stay at home. Well, you're going to break the law if you go out. So you can break the law and go onto a rhino farm and try and get you know some money for yourself and your family. So um, poaching went bananas during COVID. Uh, so it, it there's a big, that, that makes a big sense. step forward, you know? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I mean, I'm it, sure drugs did too. You know what I mean? It's well. I mean, so did Etsy. Like that's the thing. You know, like <laughs> yeah. alternative yeah. means of of making money. I mean, that was yeah. that people people flocked only to, to self employment. <laughs> only fans. Yes, exactly. I mean, <laughs> only rhinos. Only rhinos. Yeah, <laughs> that's. It. I mean, I guess it makes sense that you know because we we are so used to hearing the drugs, the guns, the things that we that we see. Yeah. We don't have rare animals that are being hunted in America, so. Mm. It's it's not something that's ever really on our radar. God, ex- I gotta tell for- you, between um, between uh, San Antonio and Austin, there is a Cabela's, and in the Cabela's there's this huge mountain with all of these taxidermied animals in it. Right, and if you see that, you would say, no, America's got plenty of rare wild animals that are being hunted. <laughs> well, but so that's the thing. And, and this kind of dovetails into my, my next question. Um, you know, in, in a functional environment, um, you know, you, you have licensed hunting that funds conservation. 
And this is this is this is actually kind of a controversial topic nowadays, especially when we're talking about mm-hmm. endangered animals and hunting endangered and protected animals. Um, because some people feel like you should not hunt at all uh, an animal that is endangered, mm-hmm. but yet you know they sell licenses to hunt elephants. Um, you know, and it, my understanding is sometimes it's like specific animals that need to be that need to be taken out of the gene pool, mm-hmm. anyways. The single um, elephant with the name. Right, <laughs> with the name, yeah. yeah. Or, you know, one of these man-eating hippos Steve. or something. I don't know. Yeah. Steve. But, but so I, I was wondering how you, as a as an anti-poacher, feel about licensed hunting and, and kind of like, you know, how you professionally interact with that, that whole, um, you know, yeah. uh, regime. Uh, professionally, that's an easy answer. You act professionally to people who are paying your wages, probably. Um, the anti-poaching units generally will be quite far away from the uh, like safari or the big game hunting elements. You'll be operating on fence patrols way out, uh, whereas they'll be centrally in the parks, they'll be right up at watering holes, they'll be finding uh, things there. So you, there's not a huge amount of overlap in terms of how you professionally interact with them. Um, and if you did, they are you're, who you're working for is going to be obviously treat these people as paying customers and and they pay your wages, so treat them with respect. I think that the case that you've stated is an ideal. And I think, yeah, fair enough. I can get on board with the ideal and say, yeah, listen, if you're going to have to kill one old elephant in order that five more can live, I think that's probably sound. I don't know that it plays out that way in reality. Right, especially in a place... Uh, where yeah, things a place that's wildly corrupt, man. Yeah, exactly. And so, what you're act, what what the, what is happening though is a lot more people are going on safari rather than game hunting, and that that's kind of giving you both. That's giving you the the funding, if you like, for to to you know uh, allow these animals to be uh, protected, but at the same time, you're not killing some of them. And so people go out and take photographs, they sleep out in the bush, they sleep in beautiful campsites, do the whole glamping thing, get to look at these animals and know they're contributing to the conservation of them. So that's getting bigger and bigger. And the hunting side of things, I mean, kind of, I think globally almost hunting is kind of getting smaller and smaller, for better or worse. Um, but, but on the surface, I'm sold on the idea, let's say, that you, if you're going to have guys going out there and hunting a whole load of different types of game, if it's sustainably managed and in fact proactively managed so that you get even more of these endangered animals, uh, happy days. Uh, I don't see that that's really how it's playing out though. I think um, it's it's definitely tricky. It's problematic. But in terms of professional environment, you'd, they'd virtually never interact. Anti-poaching and hunting, you'd be off doing your thing, you know? So is there ever any... How do I phrase this? You you mentioned the the corruption in in the uh, in the whole regime down there, and it makes sense. I mean, you you find that anywhere. But do yeah. you ever you ever witness this uh, and like how it conflicts with your duties? Um, has there ever been a time where you know it, it's it's prevented you from doing your job properly, or or any any stories like that? Somebody you know, um, or is it more like on a upper d- upper level I- corruption? That, so yeah, so for me to for me, let's just say no, okay, never. I've only ever seen 
perfect behavior at all times. <laughs> of course. However, yeah. <laughs> however, um, <laughs> in a, every, every aspect of life, uh, there's, um, it's hard to call it corruption in the sense that having a, an informal way of moving things forward in a society, um, that doesn't adhere to like the traditional Western way of doing it. I don't know that you need to necessarily call that corruption. It looks like corruption to me. And certainly if I went into town here and people in Dublin were operating this way, I'd be going, what's going on? This is ridiculous. However, this is Africa, or in my case, it's South Africa. Um, and things are different there and their history is different and their country is like, like Ireland is a young country. But South Africa is so young in, in terms of what it is in the modern era. You're talking about it, you know, a less than 30-year-old country or whatever. Um, so it's it's a strange place. It's still finding its feet to some extent. It's massive social upheaval because it had a very, I mean, it, it had, a you know, the apartheid state that literally has social strata codified and written down. And then to, to take that away, obviously there's this kind of chaotic, well, now nothing's written down. So what happens next? So it's really um, quite a peculiar country. Uh, there, there, or, you know, the parts that I've been in, because I by no means am an expert on the whole country or anything like that, but uh, there's like 11 national languages. So you've got wow. such diversity, such ethnic diversity, Um and and even the regions. I think it's the only country in the world that has something like ten of the main types of ecosystems. You know, like desert, savanna, um, rainforest, and stuff. Yeah, it's wild. Like what? Wow. It, it's a it's an and it's huge. I mean, it's not huge when you're from America, but it's huge when you're from almost any other country. Um, yeah. Much much bigger than Ireland, obviously. Uh, so, so yeah. In terms of witnessing. I'd say, like, because talking about anti-poaching, things can get pretty bad. What I've witnessed is incredible hospitality. Um, people really trying their best for, for certain things and a lot of things and for each other. Um, a lot of compassion. A lot of people struggling. Um, a lot of wasted brilliance and talent. Um, because, again, that system yeah. hasn't completely changed and you've got some of the best people... Like the people that you want to have when you, if you're going into a shitstorm, you're like, right, I know who I want to have my back. And they're the people who would be looked past and ignored in almost any other situation. So, um, you know, so, so there it's, it's again filled with problems, but overwhelmingly like the people are incredible. And I don't want that to sound patronizing, you know, to be, oh, they're such good people, but you know, they can't run their country or whatever. It's a young country. It needs a chance yeah. It might be too well, and, big. And it's got that oh. hangover from, from colonial abuse, right? And, and yeah. you know, the apartheid state, which, you know, codifying uh, pseudoscience, like, you know, race science and, and that kind of stuff into your laws really distorts your economy and your social landscape. And it's Absolutely. very difficult to come back from that. Well, think about how we are it's here in the U.S. Even. You've, it's super difficult. It's been so much longer. You've got... Um, one of the kind of unseen parts of that or, or the problematic parts of it in, in South Africa is there's a lot of people who did very well out of that situation and they have to believe a story that says 
that was all fair enough. They're not able to write, the, you know, read the history and read themselves as the villain in that history. They've got to be like, hey, you know, but actually South Africa is much better off because of that. And they've got, you know, they've got to kind of rewrite some of the woes that South Africa faced. And that feeds back into the poaching thing where you go, well, yes, wasn't it better? You know, there was no poaching under apartheid. Wasn't it better? You know what I mean? They've got to kind of tell right. some <laughs> stories back to themselves. Jeez. Um and that, you know, I'm probably saying that in a little bit clumsily because I, I haven't really formulated no, this properly. I, I no, know it makes perfect sense, though. Yeah, so you, you, nobody wants to be, you know, you want to be somebody who's incredibly rational to be able to take all that information in and go, yeah, do you know what, I'm, I should give this up now. I should hand back the keys and walk away. You'd want to be incredibly rational to see things that way. And, there, you know, there's all kinds of problems with that anyway. But I, in terms of the place and the... The corruption, yeah, it's it's rampant, it's wild, um, but I I find and again, you know, it's mad. I find a lot of that freeing. I find you know when I'm in a country that's like like the United States or you know Europe or whatever like that, you, it kind of feels like shit. You know, when I walk out the door, anything doesn't go. Anything couldn't happen. Like most things are guaranteed to not happen if I'm living in the United States or Europe or whatever. When I walk out the door in Africa, I'm like, who the fuck knows what's going to come at me next? You know what I mean? It's <laughs> yeah. all it's a, bananas. It's, it's all crazy. And Steve I like the that. I, yeah, I, I love that. I, lo it's, I love it about, I love it about, you know, India. I love it about like Lebanon. I, that, it, that, when I was in Lebanon, that just is the most wild place I've, i just felt like anything could go down at any moment and wow. i mean that's like that is true of lebanon so but i just i love that feeling again it's that feeling of being sharpened up by it you don't get to walk out the door and kind of just be chilling out and whatever like that you appreciate how on it you need to be all the time and and like i was saying to you about those guys walking 50 kilometers at night like how sharp do you need to be to be able to stay sharp for a 12-hour shift where you're walking 50 kilometers at night and you don't know when the shit's going to hit the fan? And again, that's one of the things I like about it where compared to like the training that I would do in Europe where you're kind of like, yeah, I'm switched on now and I'm running and gunning and I'm doing my cool tactical shit. And it's like, yeah why don't we do that five hours from now and spend the next five hours just running and eating shit? And then let's see how we do at the end of that, rather than coming out and being like, hey, everything's perfect. We've just eaten a fucking three-course meal. We've settled in, cups of coffee. Okay, now let's hit it. I'm like, I love how raw it is and the, the proving ground that all these guys have. And then the things, that, the things that matter and don't matter, like guys who you know, are more interested in having a good pair of boots than having good firearms. It's like, fuck, I would never in a million years think that a because yeah, we all take our boots for granted. Yeah, it does. It does. But we we take we take good boots for granted. First of all, can't we fight probably can't walk. Exactly. We probably never do fifty kilometers in our boots, so we don't actually even no. know if we've got good boots or not. We wear them for a few hours on a Saturday, and then it's like back they go, and we're in our fucking Crocs take eight for steps the week. at the store, and you're like, these are comfortable. I'll buy them. Yeah, yeah. So you you do that, and then. And then as you work your way back, you know, then they're like, you know, knowing how to use the radio, that's super important. And again, it's like, yeah, okay, this radio is good, but it's not going to work if I'm 25 kilometers away. Like you're talking about potentially huge distances. Um, 
and not great equipment. So, you know, there's that. Uh, and and just, you, you see guys who buy, like, you know, they're, they're going around with backpacks that are essentially, like, school school book bags that just happen to be camouflaged because that's what was for sale in the store one day or whatever. Yeah. And they're lugging, you know, all the gear that they need for that time in, in, in the bag. And then, again, I go back to Europe and I've got, you know, I'm meeting guys out here and it's all the best shit you've ever seen. They wear it for two hours and their back is sore. And I'm just like... <clears throat> no you're not going to cut it you know in in this environment i I absolutely love that um yeah so for me i just love being sharpened up yeah and i feel like that's a huge difference between guys who train for scenarios and people who live it constantly i mean we saw that in the middle east you know when when there were 13 year olds who had been raised with an ak who knew how to shoot better than uh you know western trained troops because it was their first conflict they're there are people yeah. who know nothing but conflict. There are people who, you know, like you said, commuting 50K uh, in, uh, in boots out in the desert is is a commute, is, is something that they just have to do. It's not a training movement for them. It's not something that mm-hmm. people, that, that like, you know, we would have to work up to, something like that. Yeah. And then that would be the culmination, and then we'd be done and never have to do it again. Um, with that kind of... With that kind of broad skill set, with with the people that you work with, um, and and you mentioning the radios, what kind of what kind of skill sets do you find that um, you're able to contribute to? Mm. Um, and have you have you learned anything from them? Also, is it is it like a mutual thing, or um, what what state, generally speaking, do you find people that that you have to work with in? That's a great question. Can we pause while I take a piss and then I come back and answer? Absolutely. (laughs) Okay, super. Hey there, everybody. We hope you're enjoying the episode. If you do like what we're about and want to support us, our Patreon is a fantastic way to do so. It allows us to improve the podcast in many ways and helps fund our alcoholic coffee beverage stash to assist on those late night recording sessions. Now, you may be thinking, this podcast has me absolutely smitten and I would love nothing more than to throw money at you. But what's in it for me? Well, I'm glad you asked. When you become a patron, you automatically get access to an exclusive collection of clips from the podcast not heard anywhere else. On top of that, we have a wide range of tiers available that will get you merch, discount codes, and even free gear delivered to you monthly. For any patrons currently listening to this, we are super thankful for your support and for keeping the dream alive that one day I will be able to meet Andrew and make sweet, sweet podcast magic with him in person. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash abetterway2a in the episode notes for the podcast or on the link in our Instagram bio. All right, now, that's all for that. Back to the show. Okay, so you asked me that question. Yeah, what can I contribute to their skill set and what can... Well, what did I learn from them? Um, the, the biggest difference, I suppose, uh, attitude. So while I, when I went over and, and was just tra- training... Um, Real quickly, I, so like I said, when I first started my training, I arrived on Thursday and on Monday we had this guy collapse at our morning PT session. Big tall guy, Llewellyn. And um, he was starting to sit down. He was a bit like ropey. And um, I said, I was like, is this guy okay? And I thought, okay, he's probably a bit dehydrated. It's very hot and whatever. Um, so I said, I'm going to go into my first aid kit. I'm a bit of a nerd when it comes to first aid stuff. And I was like, I'm just going to get some electrolytes and try and rehydrate this guy and see how he's going. And when I came back out of the bungalow with, uh, he's lying in the back of the pickup truck. And I run up and I'm like, what the fuck has happened? I've gone for two minutes. Like, 
And they're kind of standing around going, I, I don't really know what's going on. Like, he's fucked. We got to get him out of here. And I said, okay, do you want my help? Like, I'm, I, I know I'm the brand new guy here, but do you want me to take control of the situation and, and, and work it? And they just said, yes, please. So I was like, great, jump in. And right away, those guys I said who I would want to have my back um, when the shit hits the fan, they were right there. One guy's holding him while... You know, I'm like I said, I'm trying to treat this thinking this guy probably has, you know, maybe we've got four hours to help. I don't know. So I was like trying to give him some water with some electrolytes and thinking, OK, if his electrolytes are all out of whack, maybe he's having some fucking crazy palpitations or something. I'm going to try and organize this. I'm way out. This is remote and austere medicine, quote unquote. It's not your standard first aid, call the ambulance and wait. So um I'm thinking we might need to clear out the back of the truck and start doing CPR and everything right, right there. Um, but he's okay. We're, he's coming in and out then. I'm okay, so I'm just talking to him. The guys were up looking, making sure we're safe as we're going down the hill, all that kind of stuff. We get there anyway, and he's fine or whatever. And then afterwards I said, guys, can we have a debrief about what happened? And I think they thought I was going to give them a bollocking. But basically I said, <laughs> like, you know, each of you guys did exactly what you needed to do. I asked you to do something, you fucking did it immediately, no questions asked, and that is amazing. And then I went through some of the mistakes that I had made. Like, I didn't know the geography of the place well enough to know how far we were from help. If we, we got there in about 45 minutes, so it was like, oh, well, 45 minutes, maybe I would have treated them differently than if I'm thinking it's four hours away, so I should have checked that. Um, also, because I was kind of fresh there, I didn't know any history for this guy. Now, nor should I, but I did take it upon myself after the fact to get medical histories of anybody who was coming in and asking about medications or EpiPens or inhalers or whatever the fuck if people were there. Um, so I introduced a kind of a different professionalism, I think, for, for first aid. Um, first aid as not a hopeless thing that you just you know, wait for help, but something that is an active thing that you can help improve and you can, you mm -hmm. know, that old saying of you can start a job that somebody more qualified than you can finish. So if we start yeah, sure. treating this guy, well, somebody else can finish. Um, so first aid was one of the big things. Um, and then from that, I suppose a degree of professionalism uh, is, is one of the things that I tried to introduce, which is just to treat everything in a, in a more kind of professional light. Now we say professional, um, what I mean, I suppose, is a more organized and more disciplined way. Um, and that meant, you know, like, fuck, I, again, you'd go out and there'd be guys sharing canteens of water. And I got pissed off by that. I was like, there is no fucking sharing of canteens. Are you going to be sharing fucking magazines? Like, that's who you are. You think coming out, you're just having fun, doing your, your patrol along the fence, and it's all cool if we share shit and chat away or whatever. But that's fine when we're just going for a walk. But when the day the shit hits the fucking fan, and like, when you're training to be an anti-poacher, part of your training is supposed to be seven days of survival training. So that if the shit hits the fan and you're stuck in the bush for seven days, you know what to do without any support. So... I'm like, if I see anybody sharing fucking uh, canteens of water, I'm going to lose my shit. Like, everybody has their own fucking canteen of water. And also, you, you know, one liter... Somebody hmm? didn't bring it? You mean sharing because yeah, somebody, somebody didn't bring would it? Yeah, oh, somebody wow. would not have it or would have drank water. I'm like, and, and one liter of water is not enough. You need to be bringing way more than that. Like, so stuff like that. So that, that was one thing. I introduced a lot of kind of equipment um, that they don't have, but I was like, guys, you should see what this stuff is. This is what thermal imaging looks like. I know that you can't afford it, but this is what it looks like. This is what someone might be looking at you 
with. So again, not like this is just a hopeless task that you show up and you try and just maybe kind of do. You own the situation and you, you know, run it well. Um, and, you know, introduce this idea to them about being, you know, useful and dangerous, useful and dangerous. And part of that is you're trying to tell people that it's good to be dangerous because that's sexy and they will try and do that. Uh, nobody wants to be fucking useless as much as they want to be dangerous. <laughs> but... <laughs> After people buy into that, then you can say to them, guys, being useful is much more useful than being dangerous. Like in virtually any fucking situation, being useful is the best and being dangerous is second to that. Being dangerous is a lever, however. So in a situation like this or in an environment like this where you are the, the, the hard ass, people will respond to that. And one of the ways I can make that happen in that environment is that I have a very extensive martial arts background. And so really immediately in any situation, I'll say, hey, can I be the person who coaches the, the, the unarmed combat or the close quarter combat or whatever the fuck they call it? And I'll say, can I coach that? And they'll say, well, why? And then I'll tell them why. And then that's a really good way of establishing, hey, I, I'm a useful person, I'm a dangerous person in some context. Um, and and establishing kind of a respect, some sort of yeah, primordial yeah. or fucking I don't know innate thing in people. They're like, yeah. oh shit, that dude can kick ass. Okay, I I think that's cool. I respect him. And so that's. But I would say first and foremost, professionalizing um the degree of first aid. That was one of the things. And how first aid should be trained. I was really lucky. I've I've done like quite a bit of first aid training, but I did training in the European Security Academy in Poland. And it's a huge, beautiful academy. They do amazing training. But I did a first aid training there a while ago. And it's it's called FREC 3, First Response Emergency Care Level 3. It's the qualification you need if you are going to become a CPO or a, or a, P, uh, a private military contractor. So you need to have, the, that's the kind of international one. Now, if you look at what FREC 3 is, it's like something you might do if you ran a preschool or you know were the occupational health first aid guy in the office or whatever like it's it's your it's your broad stuff it's your a b c d it's your how to treat how to do cpr at a community level how to do you know all the basic stuff deal with a stroke deal with some cuts and some burns whatever all cool stuff that everybody should learn i'm not i'm not disparaging that but when you do it in european security academy the guy who teaches it this dude matt um he's former Polish Army, PMC, tours, blah, blah, blah. I don't really want to go into... I'll only get it wrong if I say what he did. But he's a paramedic now, and I was going to real fucking hard ass. And he produces... So he's like, great, we'll do the PMC. We'll do the FREC 3 thing. That's your qualification. You need it if you want to be a close protection officer or a private military contractor. But what I want to do is I want to produce the kinds of people who are going to start the job that he's expected to finish. That's what he wants. He's like, when I show up on the fucking scene, who I, I want you to be the kind of person that should have been there, who started the CPR, who, who, who put on that tourniquet, who did that. And like with the tourniquets, like straight away, he just is introducing you to races and everybody's racing to do the tourniquet. He's like, yeah, dead, 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 dead. If you're too slow, he's like, fucking do it again. Because everybody treats first aid <laughs> like it's something you learn, but it's actually a skill that you train. No more than shit. You can't just teach someone, this is how a gun works and they're suddenly able to shoot it. It's a fucking yeah. skill that you have to train. First aid is the same thing. And you're going to be shitting yourself when the responsibility of first aid comes onto you. So I was introducing the tourniquet races 
introducing simulations, having guys do fucking burpees and carry tires and drag stuff in and do first aid and run back out. And they'd never seen anything like that. Um, so that was cool to, to introduce that. Then obviously I introduced uh, close quarter combat stuff. And um, like some rifle stuff, but that's just really a function of what people have to do for the Pesira grade. So again, that qualification that you need to have as a security guard, there's just bits and pieces in that. I think they've got like some funny things like, you know, like all these kinds of trainings that you have to do, you have to do things like where you have to kind of shimmy under a window, like with your firearm, but you haven't been seen from people inside the, inside the window. And that's one of the things you, we had to kind of do. And I was like, Guys, it's if you're ever in this fucking, for... totally bananas, and you're kind of like, I hope they don't see me out the window because they'll just fucking shoot me to death. And I was like, <laughs> guys, if you're in that situation, just walk, you know, a kilometer over there into the bushes, walk down the road, and come back. Like, don't snake underneath the window. Just go way out miles away, come back in, and go in the fucking door on the far side. Like, don't take that mad like you know, action movie risk of shimmying along on your back with the fucking gun. Like it was just so, but anyway, obviously some, some academic or somebody said, yeah, when we're putting together these grades, make them do this stuff. Um, you have to do your competency. I saw it on well. a DVD once. Yeah. I, well, yeah, I'd put a DVD of fucking, I don't know, Tom Cruise or something, not like even <laughs> anything worth doing. Like just, anyway, I, I shouldn't be, you know, kind of disparaging of those things, you know, you have to climb over a wall with guns. There's just a bunch of these kind of funny drills that they have you do, every one of which, you know, you would want to really find yourself painted into some bizarre corner to have to do that. Um, that that's the best option. That like, you know, leaving and putting two kilometers between you and whoever has managed to get you in that situation. Like how how is climbing over that wall, you know, with three guys better than just... right. This wall out in the middle else. of the fucking wildlife preserve. There's, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, but then, yeah, and and then some driving stuff too, because again, I remember driving around the cars and just thinking like, wow, these cars are so bad. Like, I can't believe how bad these cars are. And then <laughs> I start to get to drive them and I'm like, oh, these cars are fine. These people just can't <laughs> fucking drive. Um, so seriously, like... So I was like, okay, dude, dude, this is how you fucking drive. Like this, this is how it works. This is how you do it. What about it? it? Is, like, is it, do you notice like people getting wrong? Is it just like, uh, driving, not avoiding uh, potholes same or, thing, or is... same thing everywhere in the world, wild overconfidence, not enough experience. Um, and just people driving too fast, you know, it, it's weird that when you do any kind of advanced driving training, you get introduced to concepts that are so completely different to anything you learn when you're learning to drive just normally. And you're like, holy shit, these are essential concepts. So the example I would use typically is like, say, what is a hazard? And people are like, oh God, it's like a road sign that says slow down or it's a, whoa, it, you know, it's all this shit. And it's like, no, a hazard is something that forces you to change the vector of what you're doing. So like the, the speed or direction of where you're going. So anything that that could be. That could be a pothole in the road. That could be a child looking like they're going to step out onto the road. These are hazards because they're forcing you to either slow down or change direction. And then I would say to the guys, like, you try to not do those two things at the same time. You don't, generally speaking, want to be slowing down and changing direction at the same time. That's when you start skidding all over the fucking roads. And if those roads are like red mud 
in Africa, changing direction and turning at the same time is it's not really something you can do because you're just gonna slide. So introducing things like that and then just being like, cool, now let's drive. Let's, you know, uh, again, it seems mad to be bringing that from a European context where you've got, you know, good, well, not in Ireland, but in the rest of Europe, good roads. But it, it matters when you're gonna, again, be putting huge distances down. Um, driving in an Irish context is much less important than it is in an African or an American context. You need to, in a lot of, like if you live in Texas, you need to have a car. If you don't, it's like, it's like being in the wild west without a horse, like, you know? So yeah, just stuff like that. But then what these guys taught me, um, you know, obviously the appreciation of the wildlife, how the bush works. Um, but really what they taught me, I suppose, was kind of, humility by seeing people who were going to get much less than me every step of the way work just as hard as me now loads of them didn't but loads of them do and loads of them are just they humble you with how committed they are to an utterly thankless job and that's something I try and take home and appreciate and be like fuck you know you know, when I'm back here, that I can at least appreciate what it is that I have, but also try and inject some of that, you know, determination to do a good job in the face of shit. That's one of the things, because, you know, we all do love doing a great job when the going's good, you know what I mean? Everybody loves that, but it's when it's miserable and you know there's no thank at the end of it. It's just grind. And that was really humbling to see people grinding for no fucking like, you know, the American dream is if you grind, there is a reward at the end of that rainbow. These guys are grinding knowing there's no reward and they're still doing it. And that's fucking wow. They're just doing it because they're committed to the work. They're just fucking committed to it. And some of the guys just don't know what else to do. You get guys there. There's one guy called a Peeway and it doesn't matter if he's now he like he is one of these you know, incredible runners, thin, tall, just could run and run and run. And we would always put him, and I'd be trying to catch him running. And, and I'm a pretty good runner, but that was one thing I couldn't beat him on. Um, but the other things I couldn't beat him on were just any shit job that we were given. He'd be like, I'm doing that to 110%. We're, oh, we're cleaning the tables, 110%. Sweeping the floor, 110 fucking percent. And again, I always had the reward of if I was working hard as a white guy and as an Irish guy, that, you know, that's always an advantage. Um, I'm going to be seen doing that and I'm going to get the kind of kudos for being seen doing it. He is kind of going to be invisible no matter how good a job he does. Um, so it's humbling to see somebody in the face of that just still grind constantly. So that was cool. Um, Isn't yeah, that I wild? That, just... That's the thing that stood out. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just going to say that's it's it's wild to see that kind of work ethic from somebody who has uh, like very little motivation for it because you think, yeah. you know, like an external motivation is a reason for work ethic. Very rarely, yeah. you know, except for in the movies and, and you know, a few people you find like an internal work ethic uh like an internal internally motivated one yeah that was common and maybe you you need to find it if you're in that situation but that was a that was not not that it was common there but it was far more common than i've seen it elsewhere like i have a couple of friends who are like that any job they do they're gonna do fucking brilliantly that's all they know working at mcdonald's growing up 
promoted to manager when he's still in school. He's doing that job 110% no matter what. But out here, again, these guys just doing 110 fucking percent. And thanklessly, that was wild. And like guys, like I said, putting in serious distance. Like, and even one one of the majors, he because you you some of them, some places you will have like military style ranks. So the, in order to establish the shape of a team, they'll be like, okay, this is the shape of this. And you've got your captain and you've got your gunner or whatever the fuck it is. And you've got your, your major. And one of the majors was this like really overweight dude. And he was the, he was just so cool and so sound, but it, it meant that because of the size of him, his work was harder than for for him than for anybody else because he's carrying all that extra weight his legs are fucking killing him he's working his ass off but he was brilliant and he had this energy that was just calming it was like let's just fucking calm down everybody and let's just and he's real low speaking and just yeah just cool just great to make friends and see how to get a close interpretation of how people live in a place that, like, you know, I've no business being, basically, you know, some Irish dude just out there, what the fuck is he doing here? And, uh, yeah, I mean, in that sense, it's tourism, and I, I don't like to think about it in that sense, but I have to be realistic about it. I get to come home. These guys, that is their home. Um, so, it's, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll stop you're benefiting. Here. No, no, you're great, man. That's, uh, you know... I think it is definitely more than tourism with what you're doing because you're you're benefiting people over there. It's not like you're just going and taking like tourists do, where they, you know, the only thing they contribute is, is money. You're you're going over there mm. and you're you're dropping knowledge bombs on people that are that are in turn hopefully going to make their lives and their jobs easier. Yeah, um, I I hope I hope so. I hope. I, I I yeah, like I said, I'm kind of really inspired in the in the. To, to leave a few things, like, man, I get, you know, before I left, I gave a talk on nutrition, on like health and nutrition. Cause like, yeah, hell yeah. you know, I get, I get up in the morning and I'd eat, um, I, I drink a cup of coffee. Right. And then I went over to the kettle one day and I look into everybody's got like their little fire buckets, you know, those little aluminum cups that the canteens sit into. It's got their fire buckets. I look in and it was half full with powder. And it was like, I suppose, coffee and milk powder and sugar and everything. I was like, are you going to fucking, like, bake a cake? It, what are you doing? <laughs> like, it's filled with... I genuinely was fucking confused. I thought people were drinking coffee, but this is... It's like, what? Are, what? And what they were like, oh, this is my... It was coffee, but their coffee was just so milky and sugary. Um, wow. And, and I was well, just like, guys... You got those uh, macros in. Well, I was just, this is why you guys have fucking athletes fought and ringworm. You're, you're getting trench foot and rotting because your body is filled with sugar and all of that fauna is just gobbling that up. Now, it's also because they're walking around in soaking wet boots. I, I obviously spoke to them about that too. And, um, you know, guys, you know, again, it's easy for me to solve problems with money when I'm there. But like, there's no reason why if they're, and again, there's the post on my Instagram about this with the footwear thing where I'm like, if you're not wearing your fucking boots, if you're not wearing your patrol boots, they are in the sunshine, they are drying out. And your feet are also in the sunshine, drying out or whatever. You're walking around in your flip-flops or barefoot on the grass or whatever it is. But there's no wearing your boots all the time where they never get a break and they stink and they rot and they're moist all the time. So you have to take care of your feet for like... 
that that everybody knows that. I mean, we're learning it now in y- Ukraine where you've got Russians that don't have socks and they're fucked because of it. So, yeah, you um, I gave them a bit of a, a talk about like, guys, this is how you can try and manage your food. And and again, you eat what you're given, but you can you can choose to eat some things and not other things. If 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 you know, lunch would sometimes be like a whole load of chips and sliced bread um and like a, a, like a drink like like Kool-Aid. I'm kind of translating all this stuff into yeah. American language. <laughs> and I'm just like, you know, you just could not have that. Just don't bother. Just don't eat that shit. Just don't eat any of it. It's fucking garbage. Like just don't eat it. Um and then there's other stuff that will be good and like there there's there is great food available um in in some cir- circumstances. Uh but then when we have money and we drive down into the town it's straight into McDonald's and I'm like fuck dudes like we could do better than this you guys want to be and they all have kind of visions of like maybe you know being a fucking door kicker and they're going to come to Europe and they're going to be a CPO in Europe and they're kind of I'm like okay if you want to be that fucking badass like let's start by eating well and let's just start by yeah, training you gotta well you got to have a, a good body to to work off of yeah and like the, these dudes like uh, like some of them are super fit um, th- none of them are super fit and super strong. That's this, you know, European American. I get to train in the best conditions all the time. These guys are wiry and super fit, or stocky and strong. That's the two things that I was seeing. Um, right. So you know, even in, even changing the training, I was like, lads, this training is fucking Instagram bullshit doing curls with logs fuck that (laughs) and so i changed like how we were doing you know a lot of the physical training there and incorporated tried to incorporate again to excite them to engage them to be thinking about things thinking about muzzle discipline using like these dummy guns that they have these steel dummy guns and just being like let's do let's use that as part of our pt in the morning let's run with these guns let's jump around shit let's fucking lie down and shoot with them let's move rather than just doing shit loads of push-ups and, and pull-ups um and have nothing against them let's do those too but like there's more to be done um than just you know your your push-ups your sit-ups your it was just real instagram bullshit um i was fed up with that i was like we can do a lot better same with the close quarter combat stuff you get this real kind of kind of Krav maga karate fucking way of training. Um, and these guys need, you've got young, fit, strong dudes who are going to be training for the rest of their lives. You don't need a crash course to try and teach them. This is how you deal with a knife because you don't. Um, yeah. I was like, <laughs> Don't get close. That's how you deal with a knife. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, have your gun. Um, so I, yeah, tried to just get them to be thinking about that in a different way and just give them some some tools that they can continue to use. Like these, this is the principle of what we're doing when we train. Stick at that. This is the principle of what we're doing when we're doing this thing and that thing. And I think that worked broadly. Um, and, you know, I'm going to go back again now in a couple of months and hopefully we can do more of the same um, and just keep at it, basically. Uh, I, I, the, the other thing is then there is a component of this that is just really self-indulgent. And that is I had a hint that I would be good at this. Like uh, I have some skills to bring and I thought it would suit me. I love the outdoors. I, lo- I am passionate about wildlife. You know, covering distance in the mountains is something I'm good at. 
and I was like, I, I, I think I could contribute. I think I could be good at this. And that really has borne out. So now I'm like, fucking, okay, there's, a, there's, there's something nice about doing something you're good at too. So that is a self-indulgent component that I'm not going to deny. Um, it's nice to go sure. out there and just do something you're good at. <laughs> that's fulfilling though. I mean, that's part of like finding meaning and, and doing something that, you know, giving, giving back while also enjoying what you're doing and, and being good at it. That, that, that's like the mm. trifecta of like internal happiness. I forget what yeah, it is, but yeah. there's like a metric to measure this by and it's, you know, f- uh, your, your needs fulfilled. And Maslow's like, hierarchy yeah, of needs. Maslow. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And then there's also that Japanese concept. I think it's Ikega. I, I'm definitely going to be butchering or whatever it yeah, is, but it's, there's a nice kind of infographic of, you know, what you're passionate about, what you love, what you're good at, what you can make money doing. And the kind of intersection yes. of those things in that Venn diagram is now this is not, it doesn't take most of those boxes, <laughs> but I totally dig it. And as long so, as we're talking about things that are related. Yeah. Um, it's a, uh, yeah. So I, so I dig it and I, and I like being challenged. Like I said, I like being forced to be sharp, to live like a monk, to go from, you know, living in this really decadent, you know, modern city and then to go down and just be like, right, I have to now, I mean, still there's loads of support there and, and there's no survival without community, regardless of what, you know, preppers think or whatever, but still you are operating kind of on your set, on your own to some extent and using your wits and thinking and learning all the time. And I just, I get such a thrill out of that. So, and I get that a little bit back here in Ireland. Well, I get a lot of it in, in Ireland. I get this thing. So I, said to you at the start of this, I, I rescue wildlife. So I started to volunteer with a wildlife rescue years ago. And I knew nothing about animals. Uh, and I was just happened to be going out with a girl and she was crazy about foxes. And some guy she followed on, on Facebook, I also followed and he put this thing up saying, hey, can anybody help rescue a fox? And I turned to her and I was like, hey, do you want to go on a date? And she was like, what do you mean? And I said, well, go rescue a fox. And obviously she thought that was fucking great. So then, and then I thought, oh, Jesus Christ, I don't know what I'm doing. What did I sign myself up for? <laughs> so, so went and like bought like big welder's gloves and went and, you know, got the fox, tried to put it in this car. You know, it was a whole fucking thing. But I, I kind of got into it. I was like, that was the same sort of feeling that I love that you know, where everything else kind of drifts away and you just focus, people call it a flow state or a mushy no shin or whatever. It's like, I'm fully just focused on this thing. And so I started to get into that and respond to cases. And a couple of times I was responding to fox cases. And I remember the first time it happened, this fox that was, uh, people were trying to catch it for like 10 days. And the fox had been caught in a snare, but it had broken the snare, was wearing the snare for, they, I think, 10 or 11 days they, they had seen it, but it was it had pretty much disemboweled itself on the snare and was totally fucked. So I get a call that it's in a back garden, so I went out to it. And I thought, right, well, this fox is still totally mobile. I can't help it. But I need to kind of move towards it to see how it moves. Maybe it staggers, maybe it corners itself, whatever. So I walked towards it and it just shot across the garden and over the wall. And as it did, as it went over the wall, I just, I had my hands on it. And I was like, how the fuck did that happen? And that was the, again, the Japanese phrase that I'm going to butcher, mushi no shin, mind no mind, where I just was so focused on the task at hand that even recording even, like, kind of fell by the wayside. And so I was like, shit, I love that. I live for that feeling. So, and I'm, I'm loving helping these animals. So I just got into that more and more and more. And now 
it also affords me the self-indulgent excuse to rescue animals from wild situations. So I get to climb onto the roofs of buildings around Dublin that I would normally never be granted access to. Um, People will stop traffic so that we can go out and, you know, rescue animals off the road, whatever it is. But again, I get to do these kind of high pressure, time critical response situations. And it's so good, again, for just keeping me sharp. And like when you're rescuing a wild animal, it's like doing first aid, but the person who needs first aid doesn't want it, and you yeah. have one chance of administering <laughs> doesn't it. Doesn't speak your language. <laughs> like an angry yeah, like, trying nah. to kill you. And if you fuck it up, it'll just be gone, and you'll ne- and it'll just yeah. die in a bush somewhere, and you'll never get to help it. So you got to like really refine that. And so now I teach wildlife rescue here to like the rest of the volunteer group that we're wi- we're in. We've got like eighty volunteers, I think, at the moment. Um, and so yeah, just trying to build that that up and then and that was what led me i was kind of like shit you know i think i could go and help animals in africa too because there's kind of an intersection of kind of the things that i'm skilled at or have a background in my passion for wild animals and they kind of coalesce in africa where you've got this anti-poaching thing so i got down to down to that and um yeah, that's my, my latest endeavor. That's going to be how I spend my winters. I used to spend my winters in Texas, so uh, this is another hot country. So, <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit yeah. a little bit hotter in Africa. I, I don't know. Um, yeah, the last time I was in Texas wasn't winter. The last time was August. Um, Ooh, so yeah, it's a hot month. It was pretty warm, and what I used to do was uh, I used to go to Texas to box. Uh, you're lucky enough to have one of the best boxing coaches, I think, alive I didn't know in that. Austin. <clears throat> yeah, in Austin. Well, a lot of people don't know. His name's Manny Cepeda. And um, he was a two-time Texas champion and a two-time world champion. And he used to be based wow. in San Marcos. And uh, I used to go up to San Marcos and train with him. And I, I've i trained in boxing gyms in a lot of countries with a lot of top guys. And I remember I did a 20-minute private with him. This is that time I had that job where I would get to work on a jet ski. I went up to him and uh, I did this 20-minute private with him. And it was like I'd never boxed before in my life. And I had been doing martial yeah. arts for at least 20 years by then. I was just like, what the fuck? And I went to a mixed martial arts gym uh, in Luling that evening. And uh, I was just like flooring people um, and dropping them with knees. And I was like, this is because of those angles that this guy Manny gave me. I, I need to train with this guy fucking more. So I went and started training with him a lot and a lot and a lot and a lot. And then I did the Austin Golden Gloves and I won it. And hey, yeah, really? he's just, yeah, really. Yeah. Just, <laughs> and I feel like this uh, is a just, whole other podcast episode. <laughs> yeah, let's <laughs> back on to talk about martial arts. That's awesome. Well, the, uh, the, the, the point about that is, that was sort of like also I'd go there and I would live like a monk for a while and I would train my ass off and then I would get to do this kind of highly competitive thing basically. But yeah, if I, if I could, if I could do it all again, I would be in, in Texas more training with, with that guy, Manny Cepeda. He's uh, I like, I'll, I'll give you an example, right? So I fight as a Southpaw and that means that my lead hand usually is quite close to the lead hand of my opponent, right? 
Um, so I don't know how much you know about martial arts, but there's oftentimes this thing called an open stance or a closed stance. So if you both are standing with your right foot forward, you're kind of interlocking almost. So it's like a, that's called a closed stance. Whereas if you're both, if one of you standing with your left foot forward and the other one standing with the right foot forward, then you're in this open stance where there's a bigger space looping between you and that big pie chart, if you like. So Southpaws, generally speaking, use their lead hand. If you've ever watched Conor McGregor, you'll see that he uses his lead hand. He touches the lead hand of his opponent. He's always like pawing that lead hand down and it totally controls the center line and how that angle is, is, is being managed. And I remember thinking, why doesn't Manny get me to do that? Why does Manny never get me to reach out and paw with that hand? Every successful Southpaw fighter seems to do this. Why does he not? And I was thinking about this for a few days and then it was like he read my mind one day because he just said, you're probably wondering why I don't get you to pull with that hand. <laughs> I was just like, fuck. No. And, and he said, he, you know, like all great boxing coaches, uh, he's, he, you know, he's got a phrase for everything. So he said, you've got to give a guy enough rope to hang himself. And I don't want you pawing someone's jab down so that they don't jab. I want you to let them punch you. I want those punches coming towards you all the time because that's how I respond. And really good professional, like the Mexican style of professional boxing is about making collisions. You want to hit guys when they're trying to hit you. So all of their force is coming forward when you hit. You don't want to be hitting guys as they wow. move backwards. You never knock them out. But he, you know, again, the phrase that we have in boxing is that, you know, he's forgotten more about boxing than I'll ever know. And that is the thing with, with, with him. He, and I, like I said, I've trained, like I trained briefly in Gleason's in New York. I trained at Fitzroy Lodge in London. I've trained in a bunch of places here in Dublin. And I mean, Ireland is pretty good. Today, our women's team just won three gold medals in the, uh, in the Europeans. So like, we're a good boxing country. Good shit. Matt, this guy, Manny Spade, like, and yeah, I kept going back after I finished working in, in New Braunfels. I kept going back to San Marcos and then to Austin and, uh, yeah, just like, like I said, like I, so I've trained in the UK. I said, I, when I lived in LA, I lived in an MMA gym. Um, I've trained in China. I lived in a tent in Amsterdam to do Dutch kickboxing. I've been in a lot of fucking places training. And then I discovered this guy, Manny Spada. And I was just like, this fucking dude is just Maybe it's just that he and Something I gel else. super well, like Styles, Styles work. He's not a Southpaw. And again, one day I was kind of wondering about that. And he was like, yeah, I'm not a Southpaw, but I've never lost to a Southpaw. And he understands <laughs> that game. So, wow. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've said so, wow like 30 times this podcast. <laughs> wow. So yeah, we can, we can talk that's about awesome. martial arts. I mean, we can talk about martial arts forever. Really, that's kind of been my life's passion. Um, yeah, that'll, that'll got me be into a lot of things. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if people are interested in that. I mean, this podcast, I thought, you know, is about Second Amendment right, gun it, rights. We, you know, we really talk about is, that at all. We have, pe <laughs> we, we have people on who we think are interesting and we want to bullshit with. That's that's uh -huh. really it. I mean, yeah. and, and we talk about guns every now and then, you know, we, we've hunting. Yeah, let me, we, let me hunting bring is back one of those things that it. we don't talk about enough because we have so yeah. many hunters, but we, we neglect them and call them FUDs. <laughs> but <laughs> now, but they're not they're all not all fuds. They're not all fuds. Well, uh, yeah. I, I do want to I do want to bring it back around to guns here in the end because it it it, it sounds to me as we're, as we're wrapping this up that what you're what you're getting at 
is that your job in, as an anti-poacher is a lot less about high-speed, cool guy shit with guns and gear and a lot more about the, the personal improvement, the body and mind. Uh, and, and I really do feel like that's something that a lot of people in the gun community here stateside are not paying attention to. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. And I mean, I'm much, much less expert about this stuff than, than you guys or probably everybody listening to this. But but I have the microphone, so I'll say what I have to say. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> That's why we're here. So, so I think, you know, tactical, the, the word tactical used to have a meaning uh, that was adjacent to strategic. And people would do strategic operations and then there would be tactical operations. And tactical now just kind of means drills, you know, fast exercises. And, you know, whereas really if somebody was going to go out to the range and do tactical drills, they would go, okay, the broad strategy is X and the tactics we're going to do are going to be, I'm going to go up onto this ridge. I'm going to be thinking about providing cover down to this way. It wouldn't be running from one oil drum to the next and shooting really fast. Now, there's definitely a value to being skillful with firearm and you have to train it in a way that's not shooting at other people. So you have to do these kinds of high pressure drills and times and things like that. That's sure. fully cool. I'm, I'm fully on board and it's fucking fun. So, you know, that's a good enough reason. So, but you do find that, you know, like that example I said earlier on where you can crawl underneath a window in this kind of cool tactical style fucking I'm a ninja, or you could just walk a kilometer away and be very safe cross whatever boundary you need to cross and then arrive back. Now, you can only do that if you're able to walk three kilometers, no problem. And there's guys who aren't able to do that, who do all kinds of other training. And you've got to train what you can train, fair enough. I'm not going to say everybody should be able to do 50 kilometers. That's no, not fair like, or reasonable. You know, walking is a pretty good skill to have. Well, yeah, you know, and, and if you're not able to do that, it's definitely worth trying to train that at least as yeah. much as running around a range or whatever. But, but yeah, there's... I suppose there's just a, a, a there's something in the middle. Like not everything needs to be war games and reading about you know movements in World War Two. But then yeah. at the same time, everything doesn't need to be pulling the trigger constantly. There's all this stuff in the middle, and I think people who train this oftentimes are talking about this kind of shit hits the fan scenario. Well, if you wanted a good proxy of what that might look like, you could go and look at anti poaching in Africa, where there's fuck all infrastructure. You're you know oftentimes inferior in terms of firepower and numbers, you know, all this kinds of stuff. And it's like, okay, well, how do you operate in that environment? How are you going to operate when you've got fuck all food or shit food, like we spoke about, no sleep, loads of walking, your feet are fucked, you can't form good uniforms. Like maybe everybody's wearing cry gear now, but if they had a shit hits the fan situation, is their wife going to be seamstressing up some fucking cool cry pants? Like, no, <laughs> you've got to kind of make fucking do. So I... I think everybody should do what they enjoy doing as long as it's not harming other people, obviously. But, you know, if you're into all that stuff, fucking definitely do it. That's cool. Um, I think people will get a great bit of joy out of extending their, let's say, firearms training or whatever from the short distance from that range stuff to going, oh, okay, now we're going to hike in and we're going to, you know, we don't know where we're going and we're going to have to find yeah. something and do an, you know, I think there's probably like, and I know there's people moving that way anyway, but I think that kind of thing would be more useful in the anti-poaching environment where, yeah, you need to be able to sure. cover a lot of distance, 
you you hopefully know your environment super fucking well and have walked it lots of times in the day and in the night. And then one of the things that was drilled into us actually that is quite cool that maybe people don't think about unless you're in a security situation. And that was this thing about attention to detail. And one of the things that they have is like, you're not supposed to smoke and throw your cigarette butt on the ground. Stompies. Yeah. Now, every motherfucker would do this. Now, not me, I don't smoke, so I wouldn't do it, but I'm fucking furious about this. I'm like, if I come in here and I see a cigarette butt on the ground, if none of us do that, I know somebody's here. I get a, I get a heads up yep. about somebody coming across our fucking fence if I see litter, if I see cigarette butts, if I see... So, like, attention to detail was really important from that point of view. It's important, how do I track if motherfuckers are wandering all over the place, you know, out of fucking discipline formations, if that was a thing. Fucking uh, throwing rubbish on the ground, food on the ground, bashing their way through bush, kicking. Oh my God, not wearing their fucking boots properly and dragging their heels. Oh, these things would just drive me bananas when we were there. But if people train to remove those things, you suddenly have these huge advantages where if you're walking through the bush, anything that's slightly out of place, your eye shoots to, that's evidence, that's information. That's a very useful thing for people to be doing. When people go walking, like, you see, I, I would have done, a, like I said, I'm good at covering distance in the mountains, right? So that's something I'm good at. Before I went, I started to try and do almost like the mindset of somebody foraging or on a nature walk where you're yeah, walking sure. through nature and you're just reading it that much more because everything isn't, you know, run in there, run for cover you know, and, and start operating right away. Most of it is about gathering information and structuring any kind of contact where you've got all the fucking advantages. And it's yeah. right to train in a circumstance where it's like, oh, I've got none of the advantages. Oh shit, the shit is fine. I better run around and shoot five different targets. But also maybe train, how am I going to find contact where I am massively advantaged? How am I yeah. going to have whatever it is. And, and and not a lot of people really practice or train that. Um, I understand why, but that would be something that I would. How useful is that? Directly. Like, you know, I mean, I know it's not, it's not useful for, you know, your, your everyday life, but you know, if you're, if you're in a real shit situation, even forget about guns. Right. I mean, if you're like yeah. car is broken down and you're in the wilderness, you know, that's useful. Yeah. Um, you know, but, but it's, and it's, it's, it's as much as, you said it's as much about like reading the signs as like not leaving signs too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, like I think one of the things that you try to do in all your training is introduce the concept of intelligence. There are intelligent people and intelligence is a skill. And I know a lot of that's kind of unfashionable, you know, it's okay to say, you know, this guy's amazing at running, like I was telling you about. But if I was to say he's not very clever, that'd be really, really kind of bad to say. He, he is clever <laughs> as it happens. But you know what I mean? There, there, that is a resource that is on a person's team. There's the clever motherfucker, right? So that that is a case. And when I went, so I was teaching some of these guys about camouflage. And there's, you know, loads of different acronyms that people use about camouflage. And there's a similar thing that I want to talk about in tracking because tracking is a huge part of being good at anti-poaching and basically 
there's you know if you look at like you know what people talk about there's like shape shine movement all this kind of stuff I'm like yeah great i was like look at the story that's being told if you look over here and you see that there's a story there that doesn't make sense those branches are at a weird angle what's the story i'm being told there like camouflage isn't just a snapshot of what's the right color or not but it's how something moves through what's changed why has that stuff gone brown quicker than that what story is being told to me there and the same thing with tracking you you know it's not fucking footprints all the way up to the guy do you know what i mean it's like a bit of a footprint a twist yeah. <laughs> of a footprint uh the bit of the and you're kind of going okay i'm not really trying to follow these signs i'm trying to read the story of these signs and that is useful in any kind of situation to start thinking like okay can i actually use my intellect to figure out and uh, give myself advantages and like when you train all your training is kind of usually like like so for example with boxing you're training off your back foot it's like okay i'm going to be really fucking tired i'm going to be in bits i'm going to fight this guy for a minute then i'm going to fight him for a minute then him for a minute then him for a minute that's going to really get me fit for this next thing whatever so definitely train to be in those terrible situations and then the rest of your training should be how to never get into those situations in the fucking first place. So that's what I think is worthwhile kind of bringing in. Like the idea that we can strategically put ourselves in massively advantageous situations. And that's the goal, basically. Um, operationally in antipelagic. The goal, obviously, is to save the animals. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, there's a lot more that goes into it than just like saving animals. Along the way, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So we have a, uh, uh, whatchamacallit, as we end these, we, we usually, I don't know if you've ever made it to the end of one of our episodes or if you've ever listened to them, but Jim from the military, to, yeah. what was that? I made sure, I made sure to, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, all right, yeah, well, we, uh, we, we make fun of Jim for, he, he never finishes the podcast episodes and he didn't know we were this about to ask this question. <laughs> Um, I know you've given a ton of really good advice throughout this, this episode, but if you had one tip or like one, uh, one piece of advice to leave people with, it like doesn't have to be quality of life, you know, not, uh, not, no, it doesn't have okay, to be I something do. big and grand. I do, but it is big and grand. Is that, a, should it not be something? No, big no, no, go ahead. It Just can be big and grand. It could be anything. Okay. Okay. So I'll, I'll give you my big and brand, my, my, my hot take, my, my one piece of wisdom that I've managed to get out of the world. So... So long ago, I studied anthropology. And in anthropology, they got this concept whereby a rite of passage adheres to the same structure all around the world, whatever the rite of passage is. There's separation, liminality, and reintroduction, or death, separation, rebirth. So it could be something simple, like <clears throat> when you're getting married, the bride and groom, they are separated so that so they they die as the two single people they go through the wedding phase which is their liminality or separation and they're reborn mr and mrs whatever do you know what i mean and they in in the community's eyes and in their own eyes they're reborn a new person well when i was coming up i had a like a trauma from childhood that meant that i had this immense um self-preservation built into me and that stifled me from going through that rite of passage for almost anything you know so you wouldn't be finishing shit you wouldn't be like taking stuff off or grabbing a big project and doing it or whatever and then i kind of changed how i do things into embracing 
the death and rebirth. And so you like when you start out on a journey and you can't do it, you can't make it, it's too hard a challenge. Yeah, the person who can't do it starts that journey. And out there in that journey, they fucking die. And the person who can do the journey is born. And that's how you complete the hardest challenges. You complete them by going out there and fucking dying and being reborn the person who can do it. And that goes against a lot of people's innate preservation. So I would just encourage people to be willing to do very difficult challenges. And when they feel impossible, they are. They're fucking impossible for that person. But let that person die and be reborn the new, better, improved version of you. Because we miss a lot of our rites of passage. Like we don't go on the agoge, like the ancient Spartans. We don't do those kinds of things. But you can find them elsewhere. You can find them by getting a black belt in fucking you gotta make your own rite of passage. You got to make your own ones. That you know, do a big fucking trek, a big hike, do a marathon, do whatever it is. You can you can do them, but you got to leave the self preservation. I'm not saying be a fucking idiot and go and get yourself killed, but I am no, saying <laughs> like let your ego metaphorically, like, let your... yeah, metaphorically do it, yeah. So that's my wisdom bit. <laughs> That no, was definitely good. grand. That was that was a kick-ass cool. beautiful piece of advice, cool. man. Really cool. cool. Don't 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 be afraid to let your your image of yourself die and 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 yes. like reform yourself. Yes, 100%. Um I yeah. and I've I've tried to bring that into my life and and I do it a lot with like like I did this thing um so I cycled from one side of Ireland to the other. Now Ireland's a very very small country, so it's not a huge task to do this, but I, I realized after doing this weird overnight cycle in the UK, I was like, you know, it would be possible to just cycle from one side of Ireland to the other overnight. And we have, uh, the month of August in Ireland is called Lunasa. It is the Celtic feast of Lunasa that traditionally had feats of strength and physical tests. And Lunasa has the same root word as l- lunatic. They both come from lunar, the moon. Lunatics looked at the moon. So, and in Ireland, your your mo- your mother, if she thought you were going to do something crazy, if you said, hey, I'm going to cycle from one side of Ireland to the other, she'd go, that's total lunacy. So I kind of came up with this thing that I'm going to do this total lunatic fucking thing. And I'm going to go to one side of Ireland, dip my feet in the Atlantic Ocean, get on my bike and cycle across, and then dip my feet in the Irish Sea. So I'm going to cycle across the whole thing. And so I, f- I, I did it to try to see if I could. And cycling along, and I remember being in the middle of the night at like three in the morning. I remember hitting the wall, getting pre-hypothermic, shivering and not being able to get myself warm, drinking my fucking thermos of coffee. Just And, you know, there's nobody around to help me. I'm just sitting in the countryside under the fucking full moon. And the me who couldn't do that journey died at that moment. And I said, the only way I can keep going is if I get back on the bike and start fucking pedaling. So I got yeah, back on the some, bike, started pedaling. Heat. And go. And that was the only thing that could warm me up. And I did it. And then I, I realized and I started to say that to other people who wanted to do the cycle. They were like, oh, I don't know. I don't think I'll be able to do it. And I was like, you fucking can't. But you start and you start pedaling until you fucking die. And out there under the light of the fucking Irish full moon somewhere in the countryside, you're going to die. And the person who can do it is going to be reborn. And that's the person who's going to come out and do the fucking thing. So um, not many people have done it, but some people have. So That is so fucking lit. At least one. <laughs> That's fucking awesome, yeah. man. Cool. Yeah. Pierce. Any other questions for me, guys? No, man. I can't thank you enough for coming on. This this uh this episode was yeah, awesome. This was and uh 
even though we didn't talk about the constitution and uh second amendment founding fathers yeah like i'm from i'm from fucking ireland man like we uh, guns in ireland we we we're the opposite end of the spectrum to you guys and i think everybody in ireland would be uh, very anti-gun and would be like, you know, America needs all their well, guns banned. They're always killing each other. Everyone so, in Ireland. A, a huge uh, majority. <laughs> yeah. It's a different culture, culture. Yeah. for sure. For sure. Yeah, it's, it's, entirely it's a different, different. culture. And, you know, I would say more people in Ireland have never held a gun, um, you know, than, ha- than have. It's a, a huge majority of people who are, who are, you know, we just don't have that culture. We don't have that that history. Yeah. Uh, we also have a history where we were ruled by the British for 800 years. Right. And I'm sure Americans might see a correspondence between those two facts. Oh, oh I definitely do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I have, yeah. I, have, I have takes on the IRA that, uh, that uh, make people here blush sometimes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We, um, well, I don't know if that would happen in Ireland. Well, a lot of people would too. Yeah, we're, we're a divided country for sure. Um, but, yeah, I Part mean, two. Uh, what kind of... Yeah, what can I say? You know, so you guys, you guys have your own issues. Um, yeah, yes, we do. That's one way to put it. Statement of the of the uh, of the night. Yeah, yeah. America's got some. He got some problems. It's got some issues. Yeah. Yeah, we got one or two. You know. Yeah. Yeah, awesome, you do, man. but it's exciting times. So, yeah, I mean, oh, we all, man, it's uh, definitely exciting. May, may you live in interesting times. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the ultimate Chinese curse. May you live in, in, in interesting times. Um. Cool. Well, guys, thanks for having me. Uh, Thank you for cool. coming on, Pierce. This was awesome. Yeah, yeah very cool My talking pleasure. to you. We'll, we'll have, an, we'll have another uh, episode about martial arts in the future. Okay, and I'm sure I didn't answer most of your questions and whatever, so if people are listening, they're going, Dude, fuck's sake, answered, you went you off on another <laughs> tangent. Like, I'll, I'll gonna, answer another time. Like, <laughs> you answered I don't know if like 98% of our questions. Yeah. It was, <laughs> like, he literally, just Andrew was typing in a question at one point, like on the Word document, and you started answering it like as he was finishing the sentence. <laughs> and we're like, what, is yeah. he, I'm like, is he watching our computer right now? But <laughs> yeah, That seriously. is, you know what that is? That's Manny Cepeda, the boxing coach. He actually taught me how to read minds. <laughs> <laughs> He's actually in this room with me. I can't see him. Yeah. Um, awesome, man. Cool. Well, you have a good rest of your night. And uh, super. Yeah. Thank you again, man. Thank you. Thank you.